Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. On this sixth episode of Emergency Medicine Cases, we have Dr. Walter Himmel and Dr. Daniel Selchin. Dr. Himmel is an emergency physician in North York General Hospital, Scarborough General, and Toronto East General Hospitals. He is a world-renowned speaker in emergency medicine and a recipient of multiple teaching awards. Dr. Daniel Selchin is a neurologist and a Rhodes Scholar. He is the head of the Division of Neurology and Regional Stroke Program at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. He was the medical director of the West Greater Toronto Area Stroke Centre from 2001 to 2008 and is a researcher in stroke and TIA. The classic definition of a TIA is neurologic dysfunction caused by focal brain or retinal ischemia lasting less than 24 hours. And this 24 hours came about sort of arbitrarily. It was kind of pulled out of nowhere. Recently, the definition has changed of TIA to less than one hour because they found that up to about 50% of classically defined TIAs uh, that is, ischemia within 24 hours, were actually infarcts, as shown on MRI. Today, we're going to discuss the importance of recognizing TIA and facilitating appropriate workup and treatment in a timely manner. Why should we care? Well, strokes are the third biggest killer of any disease, and once a patient has a stroke, even with thrombolysis, there's often devastating long-term disability. About a quarter of strokes are preceded by a TIA, and up to 15% of patients have a stroke within three months of a TIA, with half of those occurring within the first 48 hours. So this is something that emergency doctors really should be uh, caring about. Well, you might be thinking, well, we can't really do much for patients with TIA anyways, so why does it really matter? Well, it does matter because some of the medications and surgical interventions have been proven to significantly affect outcomes, and these are all time-sensitive. We now know that there's an unacceptably high proportion of TIA patients that are under-investigated and under-treated during the period of highest risk of stroke. So emergency doctors are in an opportune position to prevent stroke and its associated morbidity and mortality when we see a patient in the emergency department with a TIA. Today we're very lucky to have two experts with a combined clinical experience of over 60 years. Dr. Himmel, who's an emergency doctor who has lectured extensively across Canada on TIA and stroke from the emergency doctor's perspective, and Dr. Selchin, who is our very first expert guest from a non-emergency medicine specialty on emergency medicine cases. He runs the TIA and stroke program at St. Michael's Hospital. Welcome, Dr. Himmel and Dr. Selchin. Thank you. Thank you. So let's jump right into our first case. It's 10 p.m., a 67-year-old woman is brought to your emergency department by her daughter, who says that while they were walking to their car after dinner, her mother suddenly dropped the car keys from her right hand, had a facial droop, and had garbled speech. The daughter helped her mother into the car, where they sat for about 20 minutes before her speech and strength returned to normal. In the emergency department, about 60 minutes later, the patient says she feels fine and she wants to go home. On further history, she denies any trauma, fever, headache, or neck pain. She has a history of hypertension for which she is taking hydrochlorothiazide and is otherwise healthy. Her vital signs are normal except for a blood pressure of 160 on 100. Her neurologic exam is normal. So the first question I have about this case, 
Dr. Himmel, are you worried about this patient or are you not worried about this patient? I'm absolutely worried about this patient. The reason is, and this is so rare in emergency medicine because usually patients present in a totally confused manner, <laughs> but this case is absolutely clear. She's 60, she has a sudden event, she's got focal findings, uh, a facial group, garbled speech, she drops something from her hand and she recovers quickly. Although the differential diagnosis in theory is pretty big, in reality, it's pretty small. It doesn't get more classical than this. This patient's had a transient ischemic attack, almost with certainty. There's always some doubt, but almost certainly the major working diagnosis, and I'm very worried. I'd agree completely with Dr. Himmel's comments. This is about as clean as you're ever going to get, and this patient has had what sounds like a large vessel transient ischemic event. And this is precisely the sort of patient, uh, when you were mentioning Dr. Hellman in your introduction, about uh, patients who get into trouble within 48 hours or within 90 days, this is exactly the sort of patient who is at high risk for getting into trouble, and the trouble could be catastrophic. Okay, let's talk a little bit more specifically about what makes this particular case high risk. There have been several risk stratification scores over the last few years that help us in determining who's at high risk and, and who isn't. There's the California score, the ABCD score, and the ABCD2 score. Dr. Himmel is going to give us some background on these risk stratification scores, and then we'll summarize at the end. I began emergency medicine in the 70s, and TAs were a complete mess to the average emergency doctor. In fact, I would say until about uh, the 1990s or 2000, the acute stroke of the emergency doctor was a complete disaster. He felt there was not much to do. In the last 10, 15 years, the world has absolutely changed. So the, uh, the first study that came out that looked at this in a very organized manner was the California study by a guy called Johnson. He looked at five factors in 2000. Uh, on a base of around 3 million patients in California. He looked at, I believe it was um, age, clinical findings like speech or weakness, duration of the TA being more than 10 minutes, and the presence of diabetes. And he's probably one of the first guys to an organized manner determined that after a TAA, the risk of a stroke all comers was about 10 to 12% at three months, and of that half, as much as 5% occurred in the first 48 hours. That was the first big study it's called a JAMA study, or the California study, or the Johnson study. And uh, he changed the world single-handedly, along with his associates. And that study was quite famous amongst emergency physicians. They gave us our first tool to assess risk, and our first tool to basically motivate our consultants to get patients admitted or worked up in an early manner. Concurrently with that, there have been studies going on in Britain. And I guess the fellow there was a guy called Peter Rothwell, whose name comes up again and again and again. And he asked the question, look, not the risk of three months so much, but the risk of about a week. And the factors were almost the same. Age over 60 was a risk factor. Uh, clinical factors were a risk factor, particularly speech defect or weakness of arm or leg. Uh, the presence of high blood pressure was a factor and the duration was a factor. And rather than just a 10 minute duration, he broke it down to a 10-minute duration and more than 60 minutes. That was called the ABCD score. And he also determined the risk of three months was approximately 10 to 15%, and the risk of the week was somewhere in the area of 4 or 5% all comers. 
but very high-risk patients were much higher than that. So people wonder, well, how come the scores are a little different? Johnson considered diabetes a factor, but not high blood pressure, and Rothwell considered blood pressure problem and not diabetes. And this was all a statistical sort of thing. So they got together, I guess, and developed the ABCD2 score. And rather than emphasize an outcome at three months, which was helpful, or the outcome at seven days, which was helpful, they looked at the outcome at two days, which was extraordinarily helpful. And they came up with using all those factors, ABCD2 score. Age over 60, they got one point. Blood pressure, when being assessed over 140, systolic or over 90 diastolic, one point. Speech deficit, one point. Weakness of an arm or a leg, they got two points. The presence of diabetes, one point. And duration more than an hour, two points. Or more than 15 minutes, rather more than 10 minutes, less than an hour, one point. That's the ABCD2 score. So if you're older, more than 60, you have weakness, a speech deficit, high blood pressure, diabetes, it lasts more than 10 minutes, your risk at two days isn't only four or five percent, it's probably six, seven, eight percent having a major stroke. And that's the scores used most in emergency doctors today. So this patient here is, uh, would be considered high risk? So the maximal score is about seven, but she'd yeah. be getting a five, five out of seven. Exactly. A five. five, so she's out of seven. moderate risk. So she's she has moderate to high risk. about four or five percent chance of a stroke within 48 hours. Absolutely, that's what it's Probably at least say. that. Uh, possibly even uh, even higher than that. I think it's important. I mean, uh, Dr. Himmel's done a beautiful job of uh, of going through these. I, I think it's important just in terms of understanding that uh, when you think about these sorts of scales, that this is common sense. Uh, why are diabetes and blood pressure uh, important? Because they're markers. They're markers for risk. Uh, why is our motor and speech phenomena important? Because these are real TIAs as opposed to the numb thumb or the numb foot or a variety of other weird phenomena that sometimes get labeled as TIAs. So they're high risk because they're actually vascular events. And a lot of the things that sometimes get labeled as TIAs aren't high risk because they aren't actually vascular events, so people don't have strokes. Uh, that's probably why age is a factor uh, as well, because uh, obviously the older you are, the bigger your risk for having an actual vascular event. So I don't think anybody has to memorize these scales. I think it, uh, what they do is they help you, uh, especially the ABCD2, it's pretty simple, but uh, it's a way of focusing. So what you really want to look for in this context are motor and speech, because those are the high-risk things. Whenever I look at the heart and stroke television ads uh, that are in Ontario, I don't know if they're in other provinces, and they talk about vague dizziness and blurred vision and headache, I think, God help us, those aren't really the things that indicate a high risk of stroke. And if everybody who had those things came into our emergency rooms, we'd be in big, big trouble. But if anybody has a speech deficit or motor weakness, it's time to listen and it's time to listen very carefully. I think that's, that's really the message of these scales. I see. Okay. Yeah, if I can add to that or emphasize one point, mm -hmm. that's really quite beautiful. For every patient I see with acute motor weakness, I must see five million patients who say, my arm is numb or I can't feel my cheek. For every patient who has a speech deficit and motor weakness, I see hundreds who say, basically, uh, I didn't feel well or I thought I was going to pass out. What this score tells you is that if someone presents with isolated numbness of arm or a leg, with isolated numbness of their nose or their lip, or feeling they're about to pass out, 
the risk of having a stroke is extraordinarily low. It wasn't even on the scale. And as Dan said, it's quite possible it wasn't even a TIA. And that's one of the other tremendous values of this risk score. It and tells you what not to worry about. And that's absolutely right, because the characteristic of a TIA is that it's a brock and it's focal in terms of the neurology. And uh, all of the other phenomena that Dr. Himmel was describing are generally not abrupt in onset, and they're not focal in terms of neurological manifestations. And you always have to be careful, but most of them aren't vascular in origin. Okay, that leads us nicely into the other diagnoses that we need to consider besides TIA and someone who does present with acute neurologic symptoms. Um, some of the more common stroke or TIA mimics are seizure, uh, migraine headache, uh, CNS tumors, subdural bleeds, hypoglycemia. I think one of the very difficult ones to differentiate sometimes when the patient has had a neurologic event outside the hospital and now they're neurologically normal is to differentiate seizure from TIA. How do you go about in your history taking uh, and differentiating those two entities? You're quite right. It's not easy. Most of the seizures, however, that you see that really mimic a stroke occur in a particular context, and it's important to remember the context. Most of them are what we call a todspheresis, and they're usually in people who have a pre-existing central nervous system focal lesion, either a prior stroke, that's probably the most common one, or a tumor. So what happens is that the uh, patient has either a focal uh, seizure or a generalized seizure with focal onset and is left with residual uh, that looks like a stroke or a TIA. So the most important element in that context is to get the prior history, as is usually the case in medicine. Uh, that's really the critical element is to find out the context. Sometimes getting a quick CT scan is very helpful in these patients because if you see a big black hole uh, that corresponds to the opposite side to where the, uh, in the brain to uh, the side of the body where the event occurred, uh, that's a pretty strong clue. The one that I see most often, uh, hypoglycemia, as any good emergency doctor knows, can mimic anything. Uh, and uh, anybody who tells you that you don't get focal neurological deficits with hypoglycemia is dead wrong because you do. I think uh, most uh, experienced emergency room doctors know that quite well. So that's an important one. The other one that we see over and over again in clinics referred from emergency room doctors and family doctors are visual disturbances. And uh, the one that's important to recognize, it has all sorts of different names, uh, but what I call a migraine equivalent uh, where you get phenomena that are similar or identical to a migraine aura, but without the headache. Migraine aura without headache is uncommon in young people and extremely common in people over the age of 50. And you get a very typical classical story of scintillating scotomatas, uh, sometimes uh, with uh, actual visual loss, sometimes just with some shimmering or obscuration. Uh, typical duration, uh, 15 minutes, anywhere between 5 and 30 minutes uh, is common. Uh, sometimes, to make things more complicated, associated with a little bit of numbness or more rarely with a little bit of speech disturbance. 
Uh, but that's a classical syndrome that people see over and over and over again. And the clues are the isolated visual phenomena because people with TIAs causing visual phenomena usually report negative phenomena, not positive ones, not the shimmering or the brightness. And the other thing that's characteristic of these phenomena is that they tend to march over time. Uh, so the symptoms, uh, if there's speech or numbness involved in addition to the visual disturbance, usually one comes on and as if it starts with the vision, as the vision is improving, the numbness or the speech disturbance come on after that. And that's not typical of what happens with a stroke or, or a TIA. Uh, obviously, you have to be careful and uh, with patients uh, in terms of before you make this diagnosis. But this is probably the, I would say, by far the most common mimic are, are these sorts of migrantous phenomena. Uh, I'll see a tumor TIA maybe once a year. So your average emergency room doctor is probably never going to see one. All of the other things uh, that are on these lengthy lists are pretty unusual. If you're following the principles that Dr. Himmel sort of outlined before, if you're looking for focality and abrupt onset, most of the other things on the list don't really fall into, uh, into that sort of category. Yeah, I agree totally. Uh, migraines are really common. I mean, the instance is, what, 10, 20% of the population? But what's less known is that a fifth of people with migraines experience vertigo. A large number of young women on the pill, a large number of young people who smoke will experience numbness of an arm or a leg. And these are often due to migraines. And of course, as Dan said, it's timing, timing, timing. A TA comes on quickly. A stroke comes on quickly. A focal seizure may come on over 30 seconds or a minute or two. Migraines come on slowly over many, many, many minutes. Let's move on to the physical examination. Uh, while, while the purpose of the physical examination in patients suspected of having a TIA is primarily to exclude a subtle neurologic deficit than making the diagnosis a stroke, what are the most important aspects of the physical for the emergency doc in patients who present with a possible stroke or, or TIA? You want to listen to their heart to make sure they haven't got echo fibrillation. That involves uh, heart rate, what the rhythm is, what the pressure is. My first question is, how do they look? Can they talk? Can they walk? Are they fully alert or not? If a person is looking at you, if their extraocular movements are fine, if their speech is normal, if they move their arms and their legs, then you quickly assess their strength, and I'll tell you about that in a moment, and their, and their gait. Somebody who can walk, talk, speak to you, has normal gait, normal stance, and a good cerebellar functioning is okay. So talk about a couple of specifics in patients who look pretty good. Um, I always check their level of alertness. That's often subliminal. You look in their eyes for pupillary size, extraocular movements. Do a quick look at their face, see if they can smile. Look for facial weakness. How about strength? One thing I never do in someone who's clearly in pretty good shape is check the strength of flexion of the elbow or flexion of the hand. It's too gross. Clearly, a guy you're talking to 
isn't going to have that problem, but I do do a pronator drift and extension of the fingers. And the reason is very simple. Probably the most sensitive test to look for fine weakness that otherwise is missed is a pronator drift. Put their hands in front of them, keep their palms down, both hands pronated. Some people say do it for a minute, some say for three minutes. But I would certainly say if a person can keep both hands out, palms down, fingers together for a full minute with no deviance one arm or the other, the chance of having a corticospinal problem is reduced dramatically. If that's fine, I'll check extension of the fingers, because that's a very fine test, extension of flexion of the fingers. Quickly see if they lift both legs. If they can do that, I probably check the reflexes, well that's of limited value. I almost always check for Binsky's, although that's a limited value in people who are in pretty good shape. But the most important thing I do once that is done, I get them to stand. I say, can you stand with your eyes closed and feet together? Now, we've all been taught that Romberg test is a test for dorsal column dysfunction. And I suppose it is. But if you can stand with your eyes closed and feet together, away from the bed, holding on to nothing, you've done a pretty good neurological exam. Because with people with cerebellar findings, your brainstem findings will have trouble doing that. And then I do a tandem gait. Now certainly older people who are healthy don't do tandem gait perfectly. But I always do a tandem gait, always do a Romberg test, and check strength as I said. If they pass those tests, I'm pretty comfortable that they haven't got any major neurological problem at that moment. Grip strength can be completely intact. Grip strength is, uh, I've been talking to generations of nurses about this because physicians for the most part have gotten uh, you can be virtually paretic and have good grip strength. It's a completely, totally, if the, if the patient is bad enough to have lost grip strength, you don't need to test it. You'll see it. Uh, I, I would agree with uh, everything that Dr. Himmel said. Uh, pronator drift, I would just say that you, you rarely have to do it for more than 10 seconds. Rarely. Uh, that's usually pl plenty. Emergency and, doctors uh, like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, well, I'm not surprised. <laughs> I do too in the office. <laughs> I like to do my exam in about a minute and a half, so I, I can sympathize completely. Uh, the, the only thing uh, that I would add is if you're doing Rombergs, you have to be very careful uh, about patients with functional overlay because uh, my experience is that about 90% of the Rombergs that I see from my residents that are positive uh, are actually functional and not organic. And uh, you have to be a little bit careful about it if it's positive. If it's, if it's, if it's negative, it's very helpful. If it's positive, you really, uh, you really have to look closely. The only thing I would add, and I'm probably hopelessly old-fashioned, is if somebody's had a hemispheric thing, I really like to listen to their neck. may just be, uh, be, be old training. Uh, because if you see somebody like our case number one here with the, uh, with the left hemisphere event, if you hear a noise there, uh, you're probably about 90% certain that, uh, that you've got a diagnosis. You can be misled by breweries. Sometimes they're nothing. But in this particular context, uh, I think it's a useful thing to do, and it takes about two seconds. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, if you look at physical examination yeah. findings for anything in medicine very carefully, the sensitivity and specificity isn't very good for almost anything, but, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. Depends uh, on the context. Yeah. Yeah, I guess one factor may have a low sensitivity and specificity, but four or five or six together really helps. Yeah.
So now that we have a good grasp on the history and physical examination, and we can get a pretty good idea already of how to predict the prognosis based on these scores, let's talk a little bit about the different types of strokes and TIA to get a better understanding of what we're dealing with and how we should be proceeding with our workup based on the different types of strokes. Dr. Himmel, could you just outline for us the major types of strokes? What I've got in my brain is I've reduced everything to the number four. Because quite <laughs> frankly, when you're seeing about four patients an hour and your shift is about eight hours long and there's noise all over the place, who can remember anything about anything? Like, it's okay now, but in the emergency department, I, I go blank all the time because I want to go out to the next patients. So I say four. There's four kinds of strokes. Number one, cardioembolic stroke, and that's about one-fourth of the time. Number two, large artery strokes. We're in large arteries, basically, in your neck and a couple in your brain, of course. That's about a quarter of all strokes. Number three, tiny artery strokes, called lacunar strokes. That's about a quarter of all strokes. And what's the last quarter? All the weird things. Intracranial hemorrhages. That's probably 15%, so we have a gap. There's cryptogenic strokes, who knows, and there's the weird things. What are the weird things? Clotting disorders, thrombophilias, PFOs, vasculitis, a lot of weird diseases come with names like Fabry's disease or, <laughs> or catasone, things like that. So it's basically four. From the heart, cardioembolic a quarter. From the neck, large arteries a quarter. Lacunar strokes a quarter. And then hemorrhages and weird things and vasculitis a quarter. And there you go. One, two, three, four. Great. And Dr. Selchin, is there a way that we can distinguish clinically between uh, a small vessel lacunar TIA and a large vessel TIA? Uh, the honest answer is sometimes. Uh, characteristically, with large vessel events, you'll have cortical findings. Typical cortical findings, obviously, the easiest one to recognize is uh, aphasia, uh, though it's amazing how often aphasia gets uh, mistaken for confusion, a uh, very common mistake, but aphasia is, uh, is the easiest. Uh, then some simple things, so aphasia, left hemisphere, from the right hemisphere, uh, neglect in its various forms, a little bit more complicated to assess for, uh, though it doesn't really take that much uh, to, uh, to sort out, and uh, visual disturbances, specifically field cuts. So the big three in terms of cortical things, uh, dysphasia, neglect, and visual field phenomena, if you have those things... It will rarely be small vessel, though thalamic strokes can occasionally can confuse this particular picture. But 98% uh, of the time, if you see those things, you're dealing with a large vessel event. Characteristically, small vessel events are more pure. Uh, that will be pure motor, pure sensory, or sometimes mixed motor sensory, but without cortical phenomena. It... It has to be, it should be clear to people, however, that if they're having difficulty with this, so is everybody else. And if you look at clinical trial data, in the best hands, a good stroke neurologist is going to be wrong 15 or 20% of the time when they try and make this distinction in the emergency room. Which is exactly why the workup is so important. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a bit about the workup then. Uh, what would be the most important early 
tests done in the emergency room and soon after uh, for these different types of stroke, Dr. Himmel? Well, the first thing you want to remember is that it's really embarrassing when you've got a patient with hemiparesis who comes back from CT scanner with a blood sugar of one. That's really embarrassing. That happens to me at least, <laughs> I wouldn't say every four years, more often than that. So probably the first thing you want to do is get an AccuCheck. It's tough to say always, but almost always get an AccuCheck right away. Yeah. Not no, no one's ever been hurt by doing it, as far as I know. Yeah. And, and there's no question I've absolutely seen people with hemiparesis and speech deficit uh, who are hypoglycemic. Unfortunately, the time I realized it, their recovery takes quite a number of hours, actually. So I think that's, that's number one. Well, I said there's basically four kinds of strokes. They each occur about a quarter of the times. So now I say there's basically four investigations. That's what I keep in mind. If you want to look for a cardioembolic stroke, the first thing you want to get in the emergency department is easy to get as a cardiogram, looking mainly for atrial fibrillation. Because AFib probably accounts for 12, 15, 16 percent of strokes. So it's, it's variable. So a cardiogram is reasonable. Also, if your cardiogram is really, really weird looking, even in the presence of normal sinus rhythm, it makes you wonder about a cardiac problem causing your stroke. That's one of your tests. What, what other kinds of cardiac problems are associated with strokes besides uh, atrial fibrillation? Right. So what are the other causes of an embolic phenomenon from the heart. Well, if you've got congestive heart failure, if you had a recent MI, if you've got left ventricular aneurysm, if you've got traumatic heart disease, valvular disease, you're at risk of having an embolism forming your left atrial appendage, which is going to get released. So just for the ECG keeners among us, uh, what are the ECG findings for uh, an LV aneurysm, for example? Right. So these patients are off normal sinus rhythm, but you're going to look for basically... Um, changes in V4, V5, V6. You're going to look basically for some ST elevation, possibly mimicking a acute MI. You're going to look for T-wave inversions in those leads, possibly also in one and AVL. So you're going to see pictures that will suggest LVH or a previous MI, or frighteningly enough, maybe even an acute MI, uh, mimicking the changes of a uh, uh, of an estillation infarct, which is secondary to an aneurysm. So all those kind of changes make you concerned. Bundle branch blocks might make you concerned. Biometricular blocks might make you concerned. Long peer interval, these are all things you look for. Okay. And they increase the chance of a cardioembolic phenomenon. Can I just add one thing for ECG keeners once we're on the subject? If you have somebody with an excruciating headache and ECG changes suggestive of an acute myocardial infarction, uh, get them to the CAT scanner if you can very quickly because both subarachnoid hemorrhage and intracranial hemorrhage, more subarachnoid but also intracranial, can be associated with very dramatic ECG changes that can look exactly like an acute myocardial infarction. We've talked about AccuCheck, we've talked about the ECG, and getting back to there's four types of strokes, and so right. there's four so, initial So exam- the next thing we're exam- is large artery strokes. So, of course, mm-hmm. you're going to have to get imaging of the neck. I'm going to skip that one because you're not going to get that in the next 60 minutes. So you're going to have to take some responsibility. The patient advocate makes sure they get neck imaging somewhere soon. And depending on where you work and who you work with, you're going to use different negotiation techniques to do that. The next thing is, should you get a CT scan of the head? And of course, that's your third test, looking for lacunar infarcts 
and stroke mimics it. And the answer is absolutely. Certainly with the first TAA, because of the differential diagnosis, because of the desire to rule out a hemorrhage, which often cannot be distinguished from the TAA, and other abnormalities are going to get CT of the head. Now I know people will tell you how often you find an abnormal CT in some of TA, and the incidence is low, 1%, 2%, 3%, but you can't afford to miss a hemorrhage or a subdural uh, or a tumor. And particularly, if it's within a couple hours of the event and you're going to get aspirin or Plavix, you really want to get a CT of the head. And you want to look for what? Bleeding, either parenchymal bleeding in the brain or a subdural or evidence of a tumor. And there are a couple of subtle things you look at that makes you wonder about the patient with increased risk. You can get paraventricular hypodensities where you get the, the paraventricular small vessel disease. That's a marker for increased risk of a stroke. And of course, you're going to look for little lacunae, small little black dots that suggest the person's had a stroke previously and cell infarcts are common. That's a marker for increased risk. So you've got your cardiogram, you're going to get a CT scan. Just to add a comment uh, about uh, CT in this context, I think it's important to remember that in this context, what we want is an unenhanced CT scan because contrast in the usual fashion doesn't add much and it can get confusing if you're looking for subtle bleeding uh, because contrast in certain context, uh, contexts can look a lot like blood. If uh, you have a patient uh, like our patient number one here, if you have the possibility, it's nice to get a CT angiogram at the same time because you can sometimes then make a vascular diagnosis uh, while doing one simple test. If uh, this obviously depends on where you work uh, and uh, how cooperative your radiologists and technicians are, uh, but you can do a CT angiogram if you have the appropriate equipment in about an extra six or seven minutes uh, beyond the time used for, for getting a routine CT. And in a patient like the one that we started out discussing, if you see an 85% carotid stenosis, uh, you're there already without uh, doing anything else. So a very useful test in a lot of contexts, not always readily available. And then the fourth thing is consider getting a few blood tests. We've got the blood sugar, probably the most important one. Most people, and it's hard to give you hardcore evidence, most people are gonna get a hemoglobin, electrolytes, as well as the blood sugar. And you know, I wouldn't argue with anybody who said, I'm gonna get an INR. Just the unlikely possibility there's gonna be another event and we're gonna consider thrombolysis. Let's review everything up to this point. You've got your patient who you think has a TIA because of an abrupt onset with focal symptoms. You've done an AccuCheck to rule out hypoglycemia and you've done a good physical examination to see if they have any ongoing subtle findings that would make the diagnosis a stroke. You've also thought about other stroke or TIA mimics like migraine, seizure, etc. Probably the three most important physical examination findings for ruling out stroke or TIA is facial paresis or droop, pronator drift, and abnormal speech. So the three most important are facial droop, pronator drift, and abnormal speech. Dr. Himmel beautifully outlined the four kinds of stroke. 
cardioembolic, large vessel, lacunar, hemorrhagic, and then all the weird ones. For each of these, there is a test to do. For cardioembolic, you do an ECG looking primarily for atrial fibrillation, but also for weird things like LV aneurysm or dilated cardiomyopathy or anything else that's unusual to increase your suspicion that it might be a cardioembolic source of the TIA. Secondly, for the large vessel TIAs, you want vascular imaging, which we're going to talk about in great detail later in the episode. Thirdly, for lacunar infarcts, you want to get a CT head. There, you're also looking to rule out a bleed, a previous stroke, or a tumor. The fourth kind of stroke, the grab bag of other weird things, you want to do basic blood work, including CBC, BUN, creatinine lights, and INR. And again, you want to be looking at the CT head. Then, based on your findings from this workup and from the ABCD2 score, you decide if your patient is high risk or low risk. Remember that the ABCD2 score is only part of the picture and that cardioembolic and large vessel disease TIAs put patients at much higher risk for a major stroke. And to review again the ABCD2 score, A is for age over 60, B is for blood pressure of over 140 on 90, C is for clinical features, which includes either unilateral weakness or speech disturbance. D is for duration of symptoms, either less than 10 minutes, 10 to 60 minutes, or over 60 minutes. And D is also for diabetes. That's where the two comes from. This next part of the program is particularly important. Dr. Selchin and Dr. Himmel are going to talk about vascular imaging and the importance of early vascular imaging in patients with TIA. After that, we're going to talk a little bit about echocardiogram and its role in TIAs. You were mentioning CTA in terms of vascular imaging yeah. and that if you can get a CTA right after the plain CT, that might give you your answer of, of stenosis. The traditional way that we've been doing it is get a plain CT and then get a carotid Doppler sometime after that. I guess the big question there is what exactly is the role of carotid Doppler and how soon after a TIA should patients be getting a carotid Doppler? That's a really important question and I think it's particularly important for the eMERGE doctor because we often determine when the patient gets through Doppler. The biggest difference you can make to a patient is to diagnose the presence of a significant stenosis in the internal carotid artery. If you can diagnose that and then have them discover that, get an early referral for surgery, you have a tremendous opportunity to save that patient's life or to prevent a major stroke. Can you give us a, a few numbers with that, Dr. Hamill? Absolutely. You know, the original studies were called NASA, the North American Studies for Carotid Endarterectomy. They were amazing. If you had a stenosis of your internal carotid artery of 70% and did nothing, your risk of a major stroke in two years was 26%. If you had a stenosis of 70-90% and had an endarterectomy within three months, three months, you reduce the risk of a stroke to 9%. So you basically prevented approximately... Uh, 
26 minus 9, about 17%, 17 strokes absolute risk reduction. That's invaluable. But it gets even better than that. Because the original NASA trials basically looked at surgery within three months of the event. That same fellow, Peter Rothwell, who looked at the ABCD and ABCD2 score said, that's nice. What if you could have your endorectomy within two weeks, or two to four weeks, or four to 12 weeks, would it make a difference? And the difference was amazing. If you have a patient who had TIA, and you got a doctor, and you diagnosed a significant stenosis, 70% or more, and that patient had surgery within two weeks, the absolute risk reduction of strokes was 30%. What in the world does that? Like nothing. If you missed the first two weeks and delayed surgery, so between two and four weeks after the TIA, the risk reduction was about 16%. If the surgery was delayed by more than four weeks, and as long as 12 weeks, the risk reduction dropped dramatically. After 12 weeks, the benefit became increasingly close to zero. So what's your job? Get a Doppler. When you want to get a Doppler, as soon as possible. In plain words, a day, two days, three days. After all, we just discussed previously that the risk of a stroke was biggest in the first seven days, and that the risk of a stroke was primarily large in the first two days. You have to act fast. So you've got to get an imaging, whether it's a Doppler or a CTA or MRA, as soon as possible. I think the point that Dr. Himmel has just made is a critical one. So I just want to rephrase the same information a slightly different way. So if you look at this in terms of number needed to treat, a carotid endarterectomy with a tight carotid stenosis under two weeks, the number needed to treat is three. Uh, there is virtually nothing that we do in medicine that has a number needed to treat of three. Virtually nothing. Absolutely. And the exact same patient, if you take it out to 12 weeks, the number needed to treat quadruples, it's 12. And if you look at this, this is all comers, if you look at it in terms of women, the benefit of carotid endarterectomy in women basically disappears after three weeks. Because women don't respond as well to endarterectomy for a variety of reasons, some of which we don't really understand. Uh, so I think the point that Dr. Himmel uh, has made is really critical, and this may be a topic for separate discussion, but we maybe should be looking at systems where that patient uh, gets access, if at all possible, to vascular imaging before they leave the emergency room uh, rather than after. And the patient that we've been talking about, the patient that we started with, with a large vessel TIA, there may be arguments for admitting that patient if it's the only way to uh, get them imaged. That may make all of us unpopular with hospital administrators, uh, but uh, I think it's a question that requires serious discussion. Now, in terms of the advantages and disadvantages of different forms of vascular imaging, uh, so basically we're talking about three things, uh, or three and a half. We're talking about carotid Doppler, which is generally the most accessible. Uh, the advantage of Doppler is that it's non-invasive and it's easy, it's ultrasound. The disadvantage is that you're generally not visualizing the intracranial circulation. So if the patient has an intracranial stenosis or a tandem lesion, you could miss it completely on Doppler. Uh, it's also an indirect measure, so every once in a while you'll get misled 
Uh, it's sometimes very difficult on a Doppler to tell the difference between a 50% stenosis and an 80% stenosis if there's kinking or if there are other abnormalities in the vessel. So easy to get, not the most accurate. Uh, CT angio, which as you probably already detected is my preference, uh, has probably with the current machines that we have, probably the most precise uh, if it's done properly with a good scanner. And you can look at the posterior circulation, the anterior circulation, and the intracranial circulation in one shot. I love this idea of when the patient goes for their plain CT, why not add the six, seven extra minutes and assuming that the renal function is okay and just do a CT, CTA. I mean, I guess the reality is as emergency doctors, we need to be able to convince the radiologist mm -hmm. that this is certainly a TIA and this is the way we want to go. Uh, but that sounds like is the wave of the future. What we I, should be doing. I think it's really certainly in patients who we're seeing from our emergency room, who uh, we think may be thrombolysis candidates, we now do this pretty much automatically. It's part of the uh, it's part of the routine process, and I think it's probably an underutilized investigation. And I think you're absolutely right. It's something that we should all collectively be pushing for. Yeah, in all fairness, a seventy percent stenosis in these patients isn't that common. If you see 100 patients in eMERGE who have what you call a TIA, you may only pick up 1 or 2 or 3 or 4% who actually have a 70% stenosis. But I've got a few comments about that. Those are the ones you are going to make a difference. Aspirin is nice. Plavix is nice. Lonely cholesterol is nice. Picking up a stenosis is life-saving. And it's not 1 in 1,000. It's probably 1, 2, 3, 4%. Those are the people to whom you'll make a phenomenal difference. And furthermore, you can be a bit selective. If it's a real TIA with a real speech problem, real motor weakness with a high score in someone who's got vasculopathic risk factors, that's someone where the chance of having a stenosis is way higher. That's one person where you could more confidently negotiate for getting a CTA along with the CT of the head. Now, if it's a low-risk patient, you're not even sure if it's the TAA. If it's a young person who doesn't smoke, I don't think it's as urgent. But as the risk factors go up, as the ABCD2 scores get more severe, you can make a good argument for getting a CTA up front. I agree completely with, uh, with, uh, with that analysis. I think that's bang on. Great. Okay, let's move on from vascular imaging to echocardiography. Um, I've always been a bit confused as to who should be getting an echo. Uh, it seems like in our TIA clinics uh, that we'll have a discussion about a little bit later on in this program, uh, that usually the echo isn't part of the mandatory workup uh, for the TIA clinics. First, who should be getting an echo and what are you looking for on an echo? Okay. This is a very difficult and, as you probably know, uh, you certainly know, a somewhat controversial area. The yield in patients who don't have known cardiac disease is very low. So I want an echocardiogram in patients where I don't have an explanation for their stroke, particularly in young patients where I don't have an explanation for their stroke. And I want it in patients where I don't have an explanation because I can tell you every once in a while you find a grade four ventricle that you weren't expecting. 
Every once in a while, you see a myxoma. The other corollary to that is that if you have old people who uh, don't have a clear-cut explanation, uh, especially for large vessel strokes, uh, you want the echo because you want to have a look at the left atrium, because if the left atrium is dilated, it's a pretty big clue for underlying uh, paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. And in that population, you also want a halter uh, because statistically, if you're looking at an older population, the Holter is probably statistically a more useful test than the ECMO. Okay, and from an emergency doctor's perspective, is there any patient in the emergency department that we should be pushing for an echo early on? Or I, don't, do you, I, I think from an emergency doc's perspective, uh, now I shouldn't be saying because I'm not an emergency room doc, but I, I would think that, that, that for the emerge doc, that's the lower priority test. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think put your effort with the uh, the doctor of the neck. Now, who, who would I really advocate in terms of getting a 2D echo? For a TAA, I don't think it's a rush. Even if you pick up a PFO or those weird atroceptal aneurysms, you're going to put them in aspirin anyways. It's not that important. But I would say if you've got someone with a major stroke or a major speech deficit with a weak arm. And if their cardiogram looks abnormal, and you're quite concerned they may have thrown an embolism, certainly if they have residual findings, that patient may deserve echo or, you know, up front. But I would say a 2D echo is, is not the top of the list. It's an important test to get done in many cases, but that's not where I'd put the major effort up front. It really isn't. Okay. And in talking about uh, less common causes of TIA, I think there's a, a couple particular causes that I'd like to discuss that uh, we're, seems that we're seeing more and more of. Uh, the first one is dissection. What, from the history and physical examination, would make you more concerned that this might be a dissection and not your usual ischemic TIA? Young patient without risk factors uh, is, uh, is, is the big group. And uh, when you start getting into younger strokes and people without risk factors, dissection actually becomes quite common in that subpopulation. It's probably the single biggest entity that you find. In terms of history, uh, prior trauma, neck pain, sudden rapid movements of the neck for, from whatever cause, uh, those are the sorts of things that, uh, that should clue you in. Neck pain isn't universal in dissection, uh, but it's extremely common. And the neck pain is frequently quite focal, actually. It, it can sometimes be quite helpful. So uh, carotid dissection, they tend to have anterior ne neck pain, yeah. and vertebral dissection, they tend to have yeah. posterior neck pain. Yeah, but I, I certainly wouldn't turn that into a religious principle. Uh, but they tend to, but it's sometimes not that well differentiated. Sometimes is, sometimes isn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess I conclude that question you might ask any young patient is, do you have neck pain, front of your neck or your back of your neck? We can add that to a list of questions we ask. Now, certainly, if they've got pain in the right side of the neck, anteriorly or posteriorly, you may think of dissection. Uh, but, of course, if they haven't got neck pain, it doesn't rule it out. Again, in young patients with stroke, it's yet another argument for CT angiogram because... It's not as good as a conventional angiogram, but it's pretty bloody good in terms of, uh, of, of recognizing dissections. 
Well, I've got to tell you an amazing story. At one hospital I work at, there's an internist whose husband was a lawyer, 45 years of age, perfect health, normal cholesterol, played soccer on a regular basis, and one day he had a stroke. Fully investigated, nothing turned up. He recovered largely, but not fully. A month later, he had another stroke. Reinvestigated. Guess what he had? A carotid artery dissection. On detailed questioning, it turned out during the football game, he'd been checked badly with a neck injury. So you're not gonna find him very often. But once again, if you miss it, the consequences can be unfortunate. So it's worth always thinking about in younger people with no apparent cause. It's one of the causes of unilateral, unusual throbbing headache. Uh, sometimes the presentation of a dissection is some neck pain and some headache without focal neurological phenomena. That's a little bit harder to recognize, but, uh, but it does happen. Yeah, I hate to be anecdotal, but I just have to be. So how often are you going to see a vertebral or carotid artery dissection? I've seen one at least every 18 to 24 months. I'll tell you who they were. Uh, a weightlifter who has severe headache, he had a verbal artery dissection. Uh, a woman who was at a dance a couple years ago suddenly developed profound vertigo and Mr. Herner syndrome, or Herner syndrome. She had a carotid artery dissection and a soccer player who had a stroke. So you're gonna see them. If you do three or four shifts a week, I guarantee you, you will see either a vertebral or a carotid artery dissection probably every year or two. I think it's worth mentioning that Dr. Hemmel works about twice as hard as most emergency doctors do. <laughs> so the 18 to 24 months, it'll probably be more like 36 to 48 months. For but you're going to see them. <laughs> yeah. The other presentation of a TIA uh, that isn't a, a classic ischemic one is endocarditis. Can you just give us a little bit of a, paint a little bit of picture of how those patients might present? Yeah, well, these patients are often tricky, right? I mean, they really are tricky. And they're tough. First of all, a lot of them are going to feel unwell for a couple of weeks, two or three or four or five weeks. A lot of them are going to have fever. They're going to have the flu. They're going to have some weight loss. They're not going to feel very good. And they may come in with a headache or a bit of weakness of an arm or a leg from knocking off a small little bit of a clot with some bacteria from their bell. They're going to present basically people with the flu, unwell, recurring fever, weight loss, now have a neurological complaint, plus or minus a neurological finding, which might be subtle. Now that we've talked about the history, the physical examination, the risk stratification and the workup for patients presenting to the emergency room with TIA, we're next going to talk about the acute management of the patient. What medications are we going to give the patient in the acute setting for a TIA that will help save lives and minimize their risk of a stroke? Well, the most important thing is what do you not do? I'll tell you what it is. Don't lower their blood pressure acutely. The patient appears and his blood pressure is 200 over 110, or 190 over 90, or 205 over 106. Someone's going to say to you, their pressure's up, their pressure's up, get it down. Do not acutely get excited and give them ibilabetalol 
or anything that's going to lower their pressure by 30 points in the next five minutes. Do not do that. That's the most important advice I would suggest. Resist the urge to drop someone's pressure real quickly with intravenous medication, with a TAA, or with a stroke for sure. Uh, secondly, if they're really dehydrated, or they've had the flu, or they've been sick, or they've been vomiting, rehydrate them. And particularly, if you look at the white count, their pillow count is five or 600,000, and you think this may be secondary to dehydration, rehydrate them. You want these patients in a relatively normal state of hydration with their pressure not acutely or aggressively modified. Okay, and in terms of medications, can you just review for us what the role of antiplatelet agents is in the acute management of TIA? Right, well, this is a really complex area, so I'll start, and then I'm going to defer, <laughs> and then we can have a discussion about it, because everyone's always cited about Agronox, Aspirin, Plavix, loading dose, no loading dose, so I think I'll start with the traditional answer, and then we can go into some of the modern stuff that's kind of apparent in the last couple of years, because there's a ton of stuff that's appeared in the world of literature in the last two years. So let me start with the real basic sort of stuff. Aspirin. Aspirin probably reduces the risk of everything by a quarter. Whether it's your heart or a stroke, it reduces by about a quarter. So most people would say giving aspirin to a patient who's had TAA, a negative CAT scan, will reduce the risk of having a stroke in the future by about 25%. That's my rule of four. Everything's four by about a quarter. And it's true. You would give a loading dose. Well, it's a bit different with TAAs and a bit different with strokes, but let's talk about a TAA the patient has no symptoms. They're going to give them an aspirin. What's the long-term dose? Well, most of us know the long-term dose is low. It's about 81 milligrams a day. In some countries, less. In some countries, more. But at least 81 milligrams a day. Should they give a loading dose? And the answer is probably yes. Most people give a loading dose of between 160 or 325 milligrams. Because I'm always a bit anxious about underdosing them with aspirin, and because I recognize the risks up front, personally, I give about 325 for baby aspirin, chewed as the loading dose. And it's perfectly reasonable to give them a 25, 81 milligrams of baby aspirin once a day. That's reasonable in North America. If you want to keep them on 160 a bit longer, that's, uh, I think that's reasonable as well. And how soon should we be giving the, the aspirin dose? As soon as you're convinced they don't have an intracranial hemorrhage or a subarachnoid hemorrhage or a tumor in their brain, you give them four baby aspirin. If you want to give two, I won't argue the point. And you make sure they are on an antiplatelet agent. And beginning immediately, you reduce the risk of having another stroke or death. Not quite as good for death, but you reduce the risk by about 25% that quickly. Okay. I just want to emphasize, uh, Dr. Hemmels made a very important point here. If you're loading, uh, don't give them an intact coated tablet to swallow. doesn't make sense. And I think the advice to give them chewable stuff is excellent advice. And I agree. I don't care much whether it's 160 or 320. I wouldn't give less than 160. Uh, but, uh, but I wouldn't give coated stuff to swallow in that setting. The other point that I would just follow up with, uh, if the patient tells you or the patient's list of medications says that they're on aspirin, uh, I give them aspirin anyway. 
because as we all know, uh, the fact that they have a bottle or they have something on a list is absolutely no evidence whatsoever that anybody's actually taken anything. And uh, if they're already taking it, you're not going to hurt them uh, by giving them uh, an extra 160 by mouth. And for the patients who are on aspirin at home and they've now presented with a TIA, this is where, for me, it gets very complicated and confusing. There's aspirin plus Plavix. There's just Plavix. There's just Agrinox. What does the evidence say? What should we be doing? Well, the first thing to ask the patient is, are you taking your aspirin? Because non-compliance is a major problem. And there's a couple of studies which have clearly shown if you skip your aspirin for three or four days, your risk of a stroke or an MI goes up pretty significantly up front. So the question was, have you been taking your aspirin? That's okay. the first question. We see surgical patients all the time who... Colonoscopies, eye surgery, dental yeah. procedures, all sorts of things for which there's actually no indication for stopping the aspirin, but it gets stopped anyway. Mm-hmm. Right, so what are your options? Well, I think I'll start real simple because this can get pretty complicated. You've got a couple of options. The option is Plavix alone. The option is Agrinox alone. And the option is Aspirin plus Plavix. So let's keep it real simple. If someone says to you, I cannot take aspirin, I get hives, I get short of breath, I wheeze, and my sister dropped dead from taking an aspirin. <laughs> Okay, so like aspirin is out of the question in that case. So what are your options? Well, not Agrinox, because Agrinox is aspirin plus uh, dipertamol. So now your option is basically Plavix. So giving Plavix is perfectly reasonable. And we know from the original trials called the Capri trials that Plavix is probably at least as good as aspirin. Some people would argue better, but I would argue it's at least as good as aspirin. The next question is, if you're going to give Plavix alone, do you give a loading dose? Well, I think the traditional answer years ago, five years ago, was no, don't. It's scary. These people have, are going to bleed in their brain and so forth. But there's a couple of recent studies. You know, one's called the um, Express Trial. One's called the uh, Faster Trial. Uh, increasing the number of people to give a loading dose of Plavix for brain events of 300 milligrams and one Plavix a day. And doing that, you can be reasonably assured you're giving at least as much protection as aspirin. You reduce the risk of a stroke by about 25%, maybe slightly better. So let's say you work in an environment now where they don't like Plavix. It's an agrodox hospital. Is that an option? And the answer is yes. If you don't want to use aspirin and you want to give something better than aspirin, maybe, uh, you could give Plavix, which is either the same or slightly better. Your other option is Agrinox, which is basically aspirin, 81 milligrams, with dipyridamol, which is presenting 200 milligrams. You can give two tablets of that a day. But I got to warn you one thing about that, if you're going to give Agrinox, with the belief it's better than aspirin, it probably is a bit. One third of your patients at least, probably more, are going to get phenomenal headaches. And here's what I have seen. Get the patient with TA, give them Agrinox. They get a phenomenal headache. They come back in 12 hours. Guess what they get? Another CT scan <laughs> to make sure they haven't got a hemorrhage. Guess what happens next? They never take Agronox again because they don't want to get a headache again. So if you're going to get Agronox, just assume they're going to get a headache, warn the patient about them, and tell them, here's what you do. 
take a couple of Tylenol with your first Agronox. With your next Agronox, take a couple of Tylenol. Do this for a couple of days. The headaches will abate. So those are, that's the starting point. Aspirin alone or Agronox, two tablets a day alone. Start ideally in the emergency department if at all possible. Or Plavix alone. And I think you can feel confident that it's increasingly acceptable to give a loading dose of 300 milligrams followed by 700 milligrams once a day. That's sort of our starting point for antiplatelet agents. And I've also heard of overlapping aspirin and Plavix. So continuing the aspirin for a few days while you're right. starting so, the Plavix. So, so I'll give my opinion, and I think we should discuss it because this is really tricky. Uh, the first thing is a lot of us are going to speak to the local internist or Locomon, and they're going to talk to you about a trial called the MATCH trial, M-A-T-C-H. What did the MATCH trial do? Well, the MATCH trial compared the use of Plavix versus aspirin and Plavix. And Matrol concluded the following, you should never give aspirin plus Plavix to a patient for stroke prevention because it's worse than aspirin alone and worse than Plavix alone because of the risk of intracranial hemorrhage and major bleeding. So because of that MATS trial, a lot of people have the belief you should never give aspirin and Plavix together. It kills patients. Well, that's true in the long run. In the long run. The MATH trial had almost no relevance to emergency doctors. The patients in that trial came into the trial one, two, three months after the stroke. The patients in that trial took aspirin plavix for two years. And curiously enough, in the first month there was a benefit. So when someone starts telling you aspirin and plavix is contraindicated in people with TAs or strokes, that's probably true in the long run. But we aren't in the long run. We're right in front of the patient. They just had their event. You don't want to give aspirin because it has failed and they're taking it. What do you do? Well, you can introduce Plavix. So a perfectly reasonable option, in my opinion, I think we should discuss this is the following. Give them their Plavix with a loading dose of 300 milligrams. If you're going to give a loading dose of 300 100 milligrams, the Plavix is fully functional probably in about six to eight hours. There's no need to give it with aspirin. On the other hand, if you're afraid to give a loading dose for some reason, and they're already taking aspirin, and you're going to give them Plavix 75 milligrams once a day alone without a loading dose, that Plavix will take two, three, four, five days to be fully functional as an anti-platelet agent. For that patient, Giving aspirin and Plavix as an overlap of three, four, five days is absolutely reasonable. And Dr. Selchin, what's what's your practice on this? Uh, I'm going to get nitty gritty practical here. Uh, I agree completely with Dr. Himmel's interpretation of the match trial results. I think they have absolutely nothing to do with emergency room doctors, and the bleeding risk didn't begin until after three months. Uh, so it's completely irrelevant. And it's also irrelevant because it was a trial of aspirin as the add-on medication on a base of Plavix, which has nothing to do with the reality that you're dealing with 99.9% of the time. Uh, in terms of using Plavix, if I'm using it in the, in the acute setting, I always load for the exact same reasons we were talking about with aspirin before. And for the same reason why you want to chew and swallow aspirin rather than use a coated aspirin, uh, if you're using Plavix in the acute setting, 
I don't think there's any point using it unless you load because it can be five days before you get any benefit. So if I'm using it in the acute setting, I always load with 300. The cardiologists sometimes use 600 or 900. I, I'm not aware of any evidence uh, in the stroke universe about the higher doses and the 300 is probably adequate. So I always do that uh, when I'm using it acutely. Uh, I usually leave patients who are on aspirin on the combination for some period of time. There's very little evidence. There's some suggestive evidence from the uh, match trial, but it's very small numbers of patients. There's a very small Canadian pilot trial called the FASTER trial, which suggests that the combination may have some short-term benefit uh, compared to, uh, uh, compared to uh, aspirin alone. Uh, so I will very frequently, while I'm working a patient up, leave them on the combination. I almost never use Agronox in this context, and this is obviously an issue where people are going to uh, have different opinions. Uh, there's a very large trial, the long, largest stroke trial ever done, something called the PROFESS trial, that suggests that for secondary prevention, uh, Plavix and aspirin are exactly equivalent. Uh, for long-term secondary stroke prevention uh, that you can use either one and I use both of them. In the acute setting, uh, the risk of getting a severe headache with Agronox BID is so high uh, that I almost never use it because you can't load with it. You simply can't. And so you don't get an adequate dose of aspirin unless you add to it. And it's when I use Plavix for secondary prevention, I usually start patients on one a day uh, for a week with some Tylenol, as Dr. Himmel was suggesting. Uh, but that doesn't work very well in the, in, the, in the acute setting because you're not really getting the effect. So I'll have some patients who I'll start on Plavix acutely and switch them to Agronox later on. I think the drugs are equally effective, but... I uh, virtually never use Agronox in the acute setting because of the acute side effect profile if you go to full dose. If I'm seeing the patient in the clinic three weeks later, that's an entirely different issue. Agronox has advantages. It's cheaper, which is, uh, which is an issue for some patients, uh, but just don't use it. In the, in, I, don't, I don't use it in the, uh, in the acute setting. The bottom line is we can say whatever we want in the hyperacute setting uh, because it's what I frequently refer to as an evidence-free zone. Uh, we just don't know. There's some suggestive evidence for combination, but it's not conclusive. It's small numbers, pilot trials, and the, uh, the big trial to find this out hasn't been done yet. Is there any situation where you would use heparin this is another area which, uh, once we're into evidence-free zones, this is another one. Uh, there's no good evidence for use of heparin in any stroke context that isn't cardioembolic, but uh, in scenarios of crescendo TIA and in scenarios where we suspect a tight basilar occlusion, I think most of us use heparin as an adjunctive medication uh, in that particular context. And I don't think those trials are ever going to be done. So it becomes a question of opinion and experience. 
So if I have somebody with a carotid distribution TIA who's had four or five of them in a short period of time, and I'm very suspicious that they have a critical stenosis, I'll heparinize that patient. And similarly, with a strong suspicion of, uh, of basilar artery stenosis, uh, I think the risk in the acute setting is small. The only caveat that I would use is that in that context, I use unfractionated intravenous heparin. I don't use low molecular weight heparins because you can't turn them off. The one big advantage of old-fashioned heparin is that you can turn it off and it goes away. Now, I think from the emergent doctor's viewpoint, the most important question of heparin is when do you not use it with absolute certainty? When can you be certain in your heart you're not going to use heparin? I'll tell you the most important scenario. You've got a patient in your department. He or she is in atrial fibrillation. He or she has had a major TAA or a stroke with residual weakness. As of today, you will still hear the comment, the person's had a stroke with atrial fibrillation. You have to give heparin to prevent another stroke. And that is absolutely unjustified, if not dangerous. So here's what I think every ear doc has to know. If you've got a patient in atrial fibrillation, and that patient's had a major TIA with pretty good recovery, or a small stroke with visual weakness, absolutely do not give intravenous heparin. The risk of another stroke is low. The risk of a bleed is substantial. The treatment is not IV heparin in those situations. Let's boil down the antiplatelet options in the acute management of TIA to a few important points. First, ASA, Plavix, and Agronox are about equally as effective in the acute management, with Plavix and Agronox maybe being slightly better. For patients with a first-time TIA, they should get ASA 160 milligrams or 320 milligrams loading dose of non-enterocoded aspirin to chew as soon as a bleed has been ruled out on CT. They should then be on 81 milligrams of enterocoded aspirin once a day. If the patient has a true allergy to ASA, then Plavix is your only option. If the patient is already on daily ASA when they have their TIA, there are three options. The first option, which seems to be favored by Dr. Himmel and Dr. Selchin, is to load with 300 milligrams of Plavix. Then give a prescription for 75 milligrams once a day. There is the option here of overlapping the ASA with the Plavix for a few days. The second option is to start Plavix at 75 milligrams a day in the emergency department. In that case, you definitely should overlap with ASA for three to five days. The third option is Agronox BID, which you can't load, unfortunately. You need to warn patients if you're starting them on Agronox acutely in the emergency department that they will very likely get a headache and suggest taking Tylenol with each dose for the first few days. The combination of Plavix and ASA in the long run has been shown to increase the risk of bleeding. 
However, in the short term, the combination of Plavix and ASA may be beneficial. The big studies aren't out yet. What are the indications for unfractionated heparin? There are really two possible indications, although there is no strong evidence for each. First is crescendo TIAs, which would indicate a critical carotid artery stenosis. The second would be the suspicion of a critical basilar artery stenosis. The use of IB heparin should probably be left up to the consultant's discretion. And so this is the kind of patient that you should be consulting a specialist for. Remember, do not use heparin in patients in AFib with a TIA in the emergency department. on to disposition. The big question is which patients should be admitted and which patients should have urgent follow-up? It's an interesting question. Uh, I can tell you that uh, I managed to successfully get myself thrown off a hospital committee years ago for suggesting that what we should be doing is admitting all the TIAs and sending all the strokes home, uh, which wasn't well received, and I, I was at least half serious. It makes sense uh, to me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> My own gut inclination is that the patient like our first case here. If I had my druthers, if I couldn't get a test like CT angio in that patient, I would like to admit the high risk patient with uh, with large vessel presentations because those are time bombs. We have good systems for seeing TIAs quickly, but we have a lot of work to do. So my own feeling is that the very high-risk patient, if there's any way of admitting them uh, without causing World War III, it's worth admitting them. When you get down to the lower-risk patients, the patients where you're not suspecting a major large vessel event, I think those patients can be, uh, can be sent to the TIA clinic. So one of the arguments for admitting these high-risk patients is that they're at such high risk of having a stroke that if they're admitted to hospital, they'd be able to be thrombolized immediately. In reality, do you see that happening when you admit patients with TIAs? Well, it's very interesting. Yeah, it's a very interesting issue because there's lots of data that suggests that if you're going to have your stroke, you're actually much better to have it at home than in the hospital in terms of the likelihood of getting appropriate treatment. Now, that's biased data. Uh, because uh, most of those inpatient strokes occur on uh, cardiac, cardiac surgery, and orthopedic wards, uh, where the recognition of stroke is, uh, shall we politely say, limited, and very often the diagnosis just gets missed. Now, I'm not sure that it's a hell of a lot better on your typical medical floor, so if you're going home with a spouse, you might get better monitoring well, it's a famous question. Where's the best place to get a laceration? On the street or on a medical ward? It's probably the street. Absolutely. You come to the emergency department, a medical ward, where do you go? Like, you ain't going to get it repaired too quick. There's another question as well, and that's the reliability of your system and the reliability of the patient and their family. You've got a patient who can't speak English, who hasn't got a car, who's impoverished, 
and you're really concerned the person's never going to come back for follow-up, that's a reason for getting them admitted. And that's a good negotiation tool. If you've got a system and you just know in your heart that you're not going to get that phone call for an echo in two or three or four days, that's the reason for being admitted. So certainly there are very soft factors. If you don't trust the system or if you don't trust the patient's ability to return for follow-up, uh, you might argue that you should negotiate for admission because you're quite concerned it'll never happen. And certainly I saw a patient last week at one of the places I work who came back with her second, it wasn't a TA now, it was the first TA, they came back with her stroke now, four days after having been seen in eMERGE. All the arrangements had been made, all the phone calls had been made, but nothing ever happened. So you've got to be confident in your heart and your mind that the follow-up will happen and the patient has somebody with them or a means of getting back to the hospital. I would never let somebody go home who's 80 years of age with a TAA with full recovery, who doesn't drive, who has nobody with them and is, has, is hearing impaired and can't answer the phone. The, the risks are too great. And I would use those soft factors as manipulative tools with my consultant to push for admission. And I think there's one fact we didn't discuss about, what do you tell the patient you're sending home? I mean, I, I really hate scaring the hell out of people. <laughs> you know, but what do you tell someone who's had a major weakness with speech loss, high blood pressure, blood sugar of 20 or 10, let's say even, what do you tell them as they're going home with all their appointments arranged? Well, I think you've got an obligation to tell them that you're at risk of having a major stroke. And if they're there with their spouse or their child, I say to them, um, are you going to check up on your relative tomorrow morning? Would you be with them? You know, this is a major issue. It's possible you're going to come back in 12 hours or 24 hours with a major stroke. I want you to understand the risks aren't great. They aren't 90%. They're 4%, 5%, 6%, but they're real. And of course, I've had the experience of seeing a patient two days after I sent them home, come back with a major hemiparetic stroke. And that patient I hadn't warned. I gotta tell you, I, not only was I embarrassed, I, I was ashamed to even look at them. I felt so badly about it. Had I warned them, I might not have prevented the problem, but I wouldn't have felt as bad about it. We, education before they leave about the risks is an important part of our role in the EED. move on here and talk a little bit about atrial fibrillation. We see lots of patients on warfarin with nasty intracranial bleeds, you know, more than anyone would like to see. How good is warfarin at reducing stroke risk after TIA and how does it compare to the rate of intracranial bleed from warfarin? Warfarin's fantastic. I mean, warfarin's been used since probably the early 1950s. And, uh, you know, most drugs, if they give you a relative risk reduction, 20%, they're considered fantastic. The relative risk reduction of warfarin in terms of uh, preventing a second embolic event is probably in the area of 65 to 70%. What comes close to that other than the carotid and rectum within two weeks? Like nothing. So if you put atrial fibrillation with risk factors, Warfarin is absolutely the way to go, almost 
without exception. Now, what are the risks? You're gonna see figures all over the map, but here's the figures I've been able to put together. The risk of serious bleeds on warfarin, which means requiring a transfusion or hospitalization or intracranial hemorrhage. The risk of serious bleeds is somewhere between two and 3% per year. Undoubtedly, higher the first three to six months. But you're looking at two to 3% per year. That being said, the risk of aspirin and plaques giving serious bleeds is about the same. So the risk of life-threatening serious bleeds from aspirin and plavix is the same as warfarin. So let's put that in context. Now, what's the risk of minor bleeds? About 10 to 12% per year. So if you look at the figures overall, the risk of all bleeding is about 12, 13, 14%, two to 3% risk of serious bleeds. How about intracranial hemorrhage? The risk of intracranial hemorrhage is somewhere between 0 0.2 or 0.3 and 1% per year. 1% is high, that's an old, fragile person. 0.2% a younger, healthier person. The risk of intracranial hemorrhage all comers is about 0 0.3, 0 0.4, 0.5% per year. The risk reduction relatively is approximately 70%. So you've got to risk stratify your patients. If you've got a patient who's young, has lone atrial fibrillation, doesn't have diabetes, doesn't have hypertension, doesn't have heart failure, has never had a TA or a stroke. That's in plain words, their CHAD score is zero. What's the risk of a stroke per year? 1%, 1.3 or 1.4%? I wouldn't use warfarin there. The risks of bleeding are significant and the relative risk reduction of a small number is a very small number. On the other hand, if you've got a CHAD score, CHADS2, heart failure, congestive heart failure, history of hypertension, diabetes, what's the A stand for? I got a block on that. Age over 75. Age over 75, <laughs> or a previous stroke. If your CHAD score is five or six, your risk of a stroke is 12 to 15% per year. With a relative risk reduction of 70%, you're getting it down to 2 or 3% per year. That's a dramatic benefit. So a CHAT score of 2 or more, a relative risk reduction of 70%, Coumadin's great. But you've got to consider the risk of bleeding, of course. This new medication, Dabigatran, there was a big study in the New England Journal uh, last year in patients with atrial fibrillation had rates of stroke that were similar when compared to warfarin, but with much less bleeding complications. Do you think that this is sort of the wave of the future that we should be using? I think the only major issue is going to be cost. The advantages are huge. Fixed dose, no blood monitoring, at least equivalent safety. This is clearly the wave of the future. The one point that we haven't, uh, I think, made here is that the risk of embolic events related to atrial fibrillation is directly linearly related to age. So it is actually the 92-year-old woman who everybody's nervous about anticoagulating who needs it the most, not the least. And uh, so this drug may have a slightly a lower dose that might be a bit of a safer pathway the, for that kind of patient, but I think, I think this is clearly what's coming.
for when you're sending home a patient with a TIA, there are several medications that I think we need to consider for the patient. Some of the medications to consider are antihypertensives and statins. The following discussion is on whether we should be giving patients antihypertensives to go home with. Dr. Himmel, aside from antiplatelet medication, for, especially for those patients who have a history of high blood pressure, who have high blood pressure in your emergency department, is there any role for starting antihypertensives in the emergency department? That's a very relevant and a very complex question. And it, it, it depends basically on, on the evidence and also on the follow-up and then how you see yourself as a doctor. So what's the evidence for blood pressure? Well, we know from long-term studies, if someone's hypertensive and you reduce their pressure by 20 systolic or 10 diastolic, the long-term risk of a stroke is reduced by 50%. So clearly, treating high blood pressure is absolutely essential in the long run. Are there any short-term studies? Well, nothing really directly relevant to ED department, except that in the presence of a stroke, the massive reduction of blood pressure can be dangerous. However, I would say that if someone's pressure is elevated and they've had a TAA with complete recovery and their pressure is more than 140, 150, 160, over 9200, you have two options. Option number one, tell the patient, you've got to see your doctor, you must begin with blood pressure medications, and that's what I want you to do. I also want you to lose weight, eat fruit and vegetables, stop adding salt to your food. I think that's one option you can take. The other option is a pharmacological option. It is perfectly reasonable, in my opinion, and the emergency department emphasis is very, very thin. But in my opinion, if you had a TAA with complete recovery, it's reasonable, and certainly that, that express trial we talked about suggests this, start them on a very gentle blood pressure reduction as an emerge doctor, along with the aspirin. What I mean by that, 12.5 milligrams of hydrochlorothiazide. A tiny dose of ACE inhibitor, that's reasonable. If you choose to do it, I think it's fine. If you choose not to do it, at least you have to do is discuss it with the patient briefly and make it very clear to them that blood pressure is a major issue. That's my practice as well. Um, I don't really see much of a downside of starting uh, a low dose of antihypertensives in the emergency department. Uh, Dr. Selgin? There actually, uh, there's at least one study of this. There isn't a lot of data. Uh, there's a funny little trial called the ACCESS trial, which was a candesartan trial, so an ARB trial. So I confess that my prejudice in this regard is the, that uh, I tend to start people if I happen to see them in this context. But I start them on either a very low dose of an ACE or a low dose of an ARB. So if you start with a low dose of an ACE or an ARB, the likelihood that you're going to drop the patient's blood pressure in a way that's dangerous is negligible, and you may be setting them up for some, uh, from, for some longer-term benefit. This is a little bit different in stroke and TIA. The natural history of blood pressure in stroke is that blood pressure goes up and actually stays up for about 10 days. Uh, peaks at 36 to 48 hours and then gradually comes down. TIA, that's less of an issue. Uh, but I, I, I would agree with Dr. Himmel that I would, uh, uh, I think it's reasonable to intervene and I would agree cautiously. We could argue about the choice of agents, uh, 
but uh, I, I think it's a reasonable thing to do. It's a particularly reasonable thing to do from my perspective in uh, the modern world where uh, 30% of the patients that we're seeing don't really have a primary care practitioner uh, so that you're actually initiating something that may be only theoretically initiated otherwise. Mm-hmm. And just from a practical perspective, for those listeners who who would want to start something in the department, you mentioned hydrochlorothiazide, 12.5 milligrams. Can you just give us some... Uh, I, I, I would sometimes use 2.5 of ramipril, 2 milligrams of perindopril, uh, 40 of, uh, of telmosartan or the equivalent of 70 uh, of herbicide. I don't think it really matters which of those agents that you use, but those sorts of doses and then hope that somebody's following it up. Yeah, so most emerge doctors have heard of the HOPE trials. They're comfortable with Altace or Ramipril. Yeah. So starting at 2.5 or 5 milligrams of Ramipril alone is reasonable. Uh, some of us have heard of the PROGRESS trial, I think, where they used uh, indapamide or Loside and Covercell. So all those drugs are perfectly reasonable. Sure. I guess the one, one caveat with ACE inhibitors is that they need follow-up follow yeah. to get their electrolytes to yeah, make sure that uh, they're, they don't, yeah. they're not hyperkalemic. I wouldn't argue with that. Thanks. <laughs> In the third part of this episode, we're going to present a case of vertigo and discuss an approach to vertigo and when we need to be suspicious of a central cause of vertigo. So here's the case. A 73-year-old man with a history of hypertension, diabetes, and smoking comes in with a chief complaint of one-week history of intermittent dizziness. On further questioning, he describes a dizziness as a sudden onset of the room swaying back and forth, lasting about 15 minutes with no residual dizziness. The episodes seem to be more frequent and more severe since its onset. It is sometimes associated with head movement as well as nausea and vomiting. He also reports an episode where he had difficulty answering his wife's questions. He had no motor or sensory deficit, no tinnitus, no hearing difficulty, and no recent viral illness. He's taking metoprolol for his hypertension and metformin for his diabetes. Dr. Himmel, can you just give us your general approach to the dizzy patient in the emergency department? I'd love to. Every shift that you do, if you see 25 patients or so, you're going to see a dizzy patient at least one or two times. So if you find dizzy confusing or irritating, your life is going to be hell. <laughs> but if you've got an approach, I think your life's going to be wonderful. You're going to get up in the morning feeling absolutely great. And there definitely is an approach to a dizzy patient. Now, most dizzy patients never have any major problems. That's reassuring. But most 73-year-olds who smoke and have diabetes are at risk for problems. That's not reassuring. The first question is, what does dizzy mean? Well, there's four kinds of strokes, there's four basic investigations, and of course, there's four kinds of dizziness. And unless you know which one you're talking about, it's gonna be a bad day. And here's the four kinds. Number one, syncope, presyncope. Did you feel like you were gonna pass out? Number two, vertigo the hallucination of rotation or linear movement. Number three, disequilibrium. Can you walk straight or are you staggering and holding on to the wall? And number four, nonspecific 
lightheadedness. Now it is true, every patient who's dizzy has fractional parts of all those kinds of dizziness, but one dominates. And if you don't know which one you're dealing with, you haven't got a clue what to do, it's gonna be a shotgun approach with no answers. So number one, did you feel like you're gonna pass out or did you syncopize? That's the syncope one. Number two, was there a spinning or movement? That's the vertigo channel. Number three, disequilibrium. You weren't gonna pass out, you weren't spinning, but you couldn't walk properly. You might fall or stagger. Number four, you weren't spinning, you weren't gonna pass out, you weren't staggering, you just felt lightheaded. That's my approach to dizziness. Now, how about vertigo? Well, and this is phenomenally helpful in my opinion, there's four kinds of vertigo. Not the central peripheral. Before you even get central peripheral, there's four kinds of vertigo. Now believe me, baby, this is absolutely reliable. Number one, less than 60 seconds. Number two, a minute to 15 minutes or half an hour. Number three, many hours. And number four, days. There's four kinds of vertigo. Less than 60 seconds is positional vertigo. Five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes is not positional vertigo. That's either a migraine or a TIA and a few other things. Next, six, seven, eight hours. That's probably a vestibulopathy or Menger's disease. In three or four or five days, that's probably labyrinthitis or a stroke. There's other differentials, but those are the ones every ED guy wants to know. Now, one other warning. When you ask a patient, how long were you spinning for or dizzy or vertiginous, they're all gonna tell you constantly. And you gotta ferret out the details. Wait a second. You mean the room's spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning nonstop? If you stay still, it continues to go on? Fine. Now it's constant for minutes or hours. Or does a patient mean, I moved the room, spun, I stayed perfectly still, I was fine. I moved again and spun again, and so forth. If you can ferret out episodes of dizziness, each for a minute or so, with relief in between, that's less than a minute, and that's positional vertigo. So four kinds of dizziness, four kinds of vertigo, and based on that, you'll know exactly where to go. Is this the kind of patient that you would worry about? This is uh, a very difficult patient, I think, for emergency room doctors and for all of us. I worry about all of these patients who are dizzy with a vertiginous component, who don't have an absolutely clear history of purely recurrent positional vertigo. I worry about every single one of them who don't have that story. And in this particular case, where the patient is having vertigo that lasts for about 15 minutes and he's having repeated episodes. Dr. Selchin, what would your differential diagnosis be in this particular case? I, I agree with Dr. Himmel. The, uh, the key thing here is to, is to sort out exactly what he means when he says it goes on for 15 minutes because it's quite frequent with these patients that when you uh, get down, they'll say that I spin for... 20 seconds and then I feel like crap for the next hour and that's a very common phenomena. This patient, uh, the, uh, the intermittent non-positional nature 
of the story makes me concerned. This isn't an absolutely typical story because when you see this story uh, with vascular disease, usually there are other things that, that accompany it, uh, not always. So I would want to very carefully with this story make sure that the patient hasn't had any double vision, that they haven't had any slurred speech because those are the two extremely common accompaniments. Uh, I want to know that uh, whether they can walk or not, which is very important, particularly whether they can walk when they're not all that dizzy. Uh, so I want to know what lives with it. What Dr. Selchin is referring to here are some of the classic findings of posterior circulation TIA. So when you have someone with vertigo, if you're suspecting that there might be a central cause, you should check for diplopia, ataxia, dysarthria, and dysphagia. Those four things. Again, it's four. Diplopia, ataxia, dysarthria, and dysphagia. And if they have any of those, then you should be suspicious of a central cause of their vertigo. Now, you got to warn our colleagues, though. All vertigo is made worse with movement. Absolutely. All right? So you can get fooled all the time. But with benign positional vertigo, it's dramatic. If the patient is perfectly still, they may feel rotten, but the vertigo stops. With BPV, when you move or suddenly turn around to look up, and you get an attack, and if you stop, it goes away. But all vertigo is made worse with movement. With the BPV, it's profound. So if it's profound and the sole precipitating factor, it's almost certainly peripheral. Now, there is such a rare thing as central positional vertigo, but that's very uncommon. The other condition uh, that uh, Dr. Himmel's alluded to where what goes along with the problem is very helpful, if the patient has profound vertigo that goes on for an extended period of time and their chronic whistling in their ear increases in magnitude, then this isn't central. It, uh, it just doesn't happen. So they have Meniere's or they have a Meniere's variant and they can be really sick and they sometimes can't walk. We, uh, we very often use walking as a differentiator here, but you try and get somebody who's in the midst of a bad Meniere's episode uh, to walk and that isn't going to happen. But they'll, they'll usually, if you ask, they'll usually tell, them that, uh, tell you either that their hearing has changed dramatically with the episode or that their tinnitus has increased dramatically or both. Mm -hmm. And those things just don't happen with, uh, with central causes. Yeah, I think with the central cause, the ataxia is at least as bad as the vertigo, if not worse. Yeah. With peripheral causes, the vertigo is way worse than the ataxia. But uh, there are exceptions, but it's a good guideline. Okay. And Dr. Selchin, what specifically would you be looking for on physical exam in this case to help you differentiate whether this yeah. is a bad central vascular cause or something peripheral? Probably the single most helpful thing is looking at eye movements. Probably more helpful than anything else. Typically, peripheral, and again, it's hard to make rules here, uh, but typically with peripheral causes, usually you get unidirectional nystagmus. You rarely get that with central causes. And it's easy to see, it's easy to reproduce. If you have vertical nystagmus, typically upbeat, occasionally downbeat, but usually upbeat, 
would be a very rare accompaniment of any, uh, of any peripheral phenomena. If you get bidirectional nystagmus, that's quite pronounced, the vast majority of the time that's going to be central. So you can learn an awful lot from looking at the eyes, probably more than from anything else. I always check these patients uh, for limb ataxia, uh, because if they have limb ataxia, it ain't peripheral. Gait is a little bit trickier, as I was alluding to before, because I've seen lots of old people uh, with, with very typical uh, positional vertigo, and in the midst of a bout, even if they're not vertiginous at that particular moment, they have difficulty walking. So I would be very careful in uh, in old people as uh, as using walking as the as the sole differentiator. Uh, you also want to do this is one of the rare situations. This is a terrible thing for a neurologist to say, but this may be one of the rare situations where an emergency room doctor actually wants to do a sensory exam because it's usually pretty useless. In this situation. If you find distinct changes in pinprick uh, on uh, one side of the face or one side of the body, it tells you something. It tells you that you're dealing with something in the lateral medulla. You also want to know whether the patient can swallow. What you really want to sort out is whether there's any whether there are any focal neurological findings. And if you do a Dix-Hall-Pike maneuver and you get nystagmus with your Dix-Hall-Pike maneuver, and it's a positive test, does that mean with 100% certainty that that's a benign positional vertigo? Or can you get that with central, more ominous causes as well? What you want to see with the Dix-Hall-Pike maneuver is you want to see a brief period of latency. You want to see quite a dramatic response, and you want to see characteristic abnormal line movement. And if you don't see those, it becomes a non-specific test. Yeah, so I, I do Dix Hall Pike fairly often, actually. And if it's absolutely classical, with one rare exception, you can be pretty sure, almost certain it's BPD with one exception, if there's a latency of at least three to four to five to six seconds. That latency must be present. If it's not vertical, but vertical rotatory, vertical nystagmus with a rotatory element if it stops after 30 to 60 seconds and then if you can do the test a few more times if you talk the patient into it and the test fatigues it's almost certainly benign positional vertigo if there's no latency forget it central positional vertigo often has no latency if it doesn't fatigue forget it and if it's not vertical vertical element, it's not reliable. But if you're totally classical, a latency, fatigability, vertical with a rotary element, if all those are present, you can almost be certain it's BPV. The only exception is possibly in a 70 or 80 year old who's a vasculopath. But you know, that's going to be very rare. Classical Dix-Hall-Pike is classically reliable. A typical responses, forget it, you can't rely on it. Well put. Okay, and the, the head thrust test, 
Do you find that useful? Can you first actually explain how you would do the head thrust test and whether yeah, you find so, it useful? Uh, that's a curious test, actually. That's almost like a doll's eye test, isn't it, on the unconscious person. So the, the, what you do is you, you stand not directly in front of the patient, a bit to the side, and you have the patient look at your nose, for example. Then you turn his head in one direction or the other. The normal response, if the patient clearly understands that you want them to look at your nose, is the eyes stay fixed on your nose and the head moves. And that's a normal response. It indicates an attack of the vestibular system. And you can be pretty assured the eighth cranial nerve and probably the pontomedular junction is fine. On the other hand, if the patient looks at your nose, stand to one side, then the other, and twist the head rapidly, and the eyes move with the head, and then go back to look at your nose, there is a problem. The eyes shouldn't be moving with the head. That's like a doll's eyes response. That tells you there's a problem with the eighth cranial nerve or at the brainstem. So that's a pretty good test when you're trying to determine whether they've got a vestibular nerve problem, usually in the face of vestibular neuronitis. But I must tell you, that's a tough test to do. It takes a lot of sophistication. And you know what? I wouldn't put that much faith in it. If you have a positive head thrust test, then that would be more indicative of a peripheral lesion. Almost always, with the rare possibility of a brainstem problem. But almost always. Now, Ballot claims it's pathodemonic for vestibular uranus. I'm not going to argue with him. <laughs> okay. One thing that you really don't want to miss is a basilar artery stenosis or a, or a looming basilar artery occlusion. This is a condition that has a very high morbidity and mortality and in the modern era is actually frequently treatable. Uh, it's one of the areas where people like me get extremely aggressive about treatment uh, because if the patient goes on to occlude the outcomes are so bad that uh, that aggressive treatment is really uh, is really warranted. Problem is that your standard imaging is frequently useless. A routine CT scan of the head will rarely show you anything unless there's a big cerebellar infarct. We've talked earlier about CT angiogram can be very useful in this context uh, because you can get beautiful views of the posterior circulation. Your ideal test uh, when you're looking at dizziness that you're having difficulty differentiating, especially if it persists, is an MRI uh, because diffusion-weighted MRI in the posterior fossa is about 500 times as good as CT scan. It's just on a different planet in terms of how useful it is. And if you see a little hit on MR in the posterior fossa, it's worth a heck of a lot more than all of the clinical assessments that Dr. Himmel and I have been talking about. They're very useful. They're very useful for screening. But in this particular context, the MR is a lot smarter than we are. Yeah, so if I see a 70 or 80-year-old vasculopath emerge with bad vertigo, I'm, I'm going to get a CT of the head. But I know full well it's an absolute and total waste of time. And the presence of a normal CT tells me nothing. And of course, I would just add, I would think two, three, four, or five times before I send home an older person or vasculopath who can't walk. 
I mean, some of us do it. I've seen it done. But it's pretty bad, in my opinion, to have two people carry out a relative who can't walk, whose risk of a brainstem infarct. And uh, I would second or third that. I couldn't agree more because in addition to the risk of the brainstem infarct, it's even maybe even more embarrassing when that patient comes back 12 hours later with a broken hip. And I've seen it. Mm-hmm. Well, in this particular case, you do go back to see the patient uh, because the nurse tells you uh, that the patient's eyes are moving funny. You go to the bedside and the patient has bidirectional vertical nystagmus spontaneously. This patient did have one thing in the history that he had difficulty answering his wife's questions uh, that would make you think a bit more about central. Now that he's got this uh, bidirectional vertical nystagmus, our worry uh, meter has just gone up. Yeah, there's, um, there's another worry meter as well. You know, you know, there's four kinds of vertigo, right? So we're into the vertigo here that's lasting not one minute and not two hours, but 15 minutes. There's very few vertigo that last 15 minutes. If you're 20 or 30 or 40 years of age, you're thinking about a migraine, maybe a tumor, maybe MS. If you're 70 or 80, I'm not thinking migraine. I'm thinking transient ischemic attack, maybe a stroke. Vertigo of 15 minutes is very unusual to older people. In younger people, it's very common. I see many a 30-year-old person with vertigo for half an hour and nothing else. They got migraines. But 70-year-olds, it's not BPV, it's not labyrinthitis, it's not Menger's disease. I mean, that time period is very suggestive of a TAA impending stroke. Okay, so the timing, the fact that they have maybe a focal neurologic deficit... And now you found that the patient has bidirectional vertical nystagmus. This is really pointing now towards a central lesion. Absolutely. So the next question is, Dr. Selchin, you did allude to the fact that an MR would be a great test. In the emergency room, patient in front of you, what should we be doing with this patient? If you can't get an MR, try and get a CT angiogram. Because what you want to sort out is whether this is large vessel or small, small vessel which is, again, not always easy on clinical grounds, especially if you're in an emergency room and you're in a hurry and there are a whole bunch of other things going on. But what you want to rule out is the condition that's potentially catastrophic, and that's large vessel disease in the posterior circulation. Doppler is not useless, but not very good uh, for this purpose. All you can tell on a Doppler is whether there's flow or not. And uh, you frequently can't tell any more than that. Uh, so uh, this is a situation where vascular imaging, CTA being the simplest, is, uh, is worth doing. And if you can't do it and the patient is fluctuating or deteriorating, you may want to get the patient somewhere where, where it can be done. Dr. Himmel, what medications are your go-to medications for vertigo in general? First, I want to talk about CIRC, S-C-R-C, otherwise known as beta-histine. Uh, everyone thinks CIRC is a treatment for all dizziness. It absolutely is not. Uh, if you look at the evidence, CIRC or beta-histine has only one indication. It's called Menier's disease. So I do not use CIRC unless I think somebody has Menier's disease. Period. CIRC, generally, makes, generally speaking, 
makes people feel bad and more dizzy. So I stay away from it, except for Meniere's disease. So basically, you either want to you want an antihistamine or antidopaminergic drug. And frankly, I use uh, Gravol at small doses for a brief time period. It's an antihistamine, and it's very, very effective. Or other antihistamines are fine too. And how about uh, anticholinergics? Yeah, so anticholinergics are clearly effective. I'll sometimes give a small dose of atropine, actually, 0. 0.4 or 0.6 milligrams IM. I've tried it a few times. It's been sort of 50-50. But uh, atropine certainly is reasonable if you're concerned about uh, vertiginous stuff. Scopolamine is reasonable. ENT people would argue don't use anything. Basically, when you give nothing, the person's brain has to adapt. And when you use drugs, you prevent adaptation. But I think in the short run, it might be humane to, uh, to give them antiemetic. And if you're concerned about a central cause, don't give anything. Uh, because you're taking a significant risk of confusing the picture. Uh, the last thing you want to do if you're monitoring somebody to see if they have brainstem ischemia is put them to sleep for, uh, for three hours by giving them uh, a parenteral antihistamine. So this patient has a very concerning central cause of vertigo, and we're going to get this patient admitted and hopefully get some kind of vascular imaging for them. Um, for the patient who you're convinced of a peripheral cause, specifically if they have benign positional vertigo, the Epley maneuver sometimes works to cure them. Could you just describe for us how an Epley maneuver is done and how effective you think it is? If I'm quite convinced the patient has BPV, benign positional vertigo, and I'm in the mood, and I've got the time, <laughs> I'll do the Epley maneuver. And that's a four-step procedure. I'm not going to describe it in detail because it's well described on the internet, but if you go to the New England Journal of Medicine and put in the words benign positional vertigo, there's a fantastic article will come up. How effective is it? Well, the literature claims 70 to 80 percent. My experience isn't that good. Occasionally, I've had to do it two or three times, and my success rate is about 50 percent. I see half the patients feel much better afterwards, but of course, they still have a sense of disequilibrium, but the vertigo is gone. But I've got another warning to make have a K basin nearby, <laughs> and be prepared to jump. Because half the time, the patient pukes all over you. So, warn the patient. And look out for your clothing. Let's review some of the key points about vertigo. In order to rule out a central cause of vertigo, first you need to see if you can rule in one of the three benign peripheral causes of vertigo, which can be done usually at the bedside. The first benign cause is benign positional vertigo. It typically lasts for one minute or less. The patient is typically normal in between attacks. You'll get a positive Dix-Hallpike maneuver with unilateral nystagmus, and the Epley maneuver cures it about half the time. Next is vestibular neuronitis, which some people call the Bell's palsy of the eighth cranial nerve, where you get acute, severe, and constant vertigo, and in that, you'll often get a positive head thrust maneuver. The third benign cause is Meniere's disease. Typically, it lasts more than 20 minutes to several hours, and it's often in combination with tinnitus, earfulness, or decreased hearing. Some of the red flags, which would increase your suspicion for a central cause of vertigo, are 
bidirectional or non-positional nystagmus, especially if they're not responding to reposition maneuvers, an inability to ambulate, although as Dr. Selchin said, a lot of elderly people or people with meniers will have a difficult time ambulating, any additional focal neurologic deficit, and lastly, anyone with a lot of cerebrovascular risk factors. One last question here is, what is on the horizon for the future when it comes to TIAs? What do you think the next big, great thing will be, or what research needs to be done for TIA? I think uh, the next breakthrough is probably going to be diagnostic rather than therapeutic, and my hope would be that the next generation of MRI scans will give us a bit of a one-stop shop for really assessing these patients. I think there's two issues. One's diagnostics, I agree totally, and the other one is political. There's lots of advocates for osteoarthritis of the hip. There's lots of advocates for non-STEMI infarcts and ST elevation infarcts. We need more advocates for TAs and strokes so we can establish more clinics with a better system where people are protected. So I think the big changes are going to be more education for the emergency physician, more advocacy, and better politics to get the systems in order. We know it has to be done, we just don't seem to be able to do it for financial and political reasons. Wow, that episode was packed with so much good stuff. I think the best way to try and retain the information from this is to listen to it a couple of times and then go over the written summary. You know, if there was one doc I could say that has been the biggest mentor to me as an emergency doc, it's Dr. Himmel. The guy knows everything. And I know he'll appreciate this month's quote of the month from Bruce Lee. If you always put a limit on everything you do, it will spread into your work and into your life. There are no limits. There are only plateaus. And you must not stay there. You must go beyond them. That wraps it up for this episode of EmergencyMedicineCases.com. In the meantime, take it easy.